Appreciate that prayer. We're going to open our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 6. And it's good to see that you all came back for the second warning of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we covered part two last Sunday, and I said, uh, if you didn't like the warnings, then don't come back. The, the crowd seems a little lighter this morning, but that's <laughs> probably due to the storm. So if you're watching online, we're glad you're with us. Uh, but yeah, last week we came to this third warning in the book of Hebrews, and we talked about how warnings are important because life is dangerous, uh, and, and not just dangers of fires and floods, although those, those things may happen. There are spiritual dangers that are all around us, and there are certain dangers in this life that can keep us from the life to come. We all know what that life to come is. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's heaven, it's eternal life. Uh, and we want to make sure that we have a confident hope of where our eternal security is, where we're going when we die. And so we began talking last week about this need for us to grow into spiritual maturity. Once we become born again, which Jesus said in John chapter 3 is how one is saved by the Spirit of God, once we become born again, you become a baby Christian, and there's a big difference between uh, childlike faith and childish faith, right? We, we love to see these little children, even as we saw this morning, coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, unless your faith is like one of these little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. So there's something about having a childlike faith, but there's also this idea in the New Testament of a childish faith. We don't want to be those children that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We want to be mature in our knowledge and in our obedience to Jesus Christ. We want to Know that we know Jesus. And so this warning in Hebrew so far has been speaking to us um, about drifting from the gospel, neglecting so great of a salvation, coming short of the rest that God promises, and as we saw last Sunday, becoming dull in our hearing of the word of God. And so there's this clear encouragement, right, for us to press forward in faith to be always moving toward Jesus, to continue to grow, as Peter says, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to mature in faith, that means that we can't just be fed on milk, but we need to be fed on solid food. We, we can't just cover again and again the ABCs of Christianity, but we need to move on toward maturity. So there should never come this point in the life of a Christian where you just kind of settle in, where you've come to this place where you've decided, you know, this is about as far as I think I'm going to go in this whole thing of being a Christian. I feel good in this spot because you never arrive. Paul says, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He was always seeking to know Jesus more and more in a deeper way that he might know him in the power of his resurrection. So Paul says, not that I have attained or that I'm already perfected, but I press on toward a goal. I press on towards Jesus. There's this uh, amazing thing that I, I love to talk about. If you go on YouTube, you can find these videos of people who celebrate too early. 
Um, in sports, this often happens where somebody is like running a race and they're just near the finish line. It's like, yes, and then somebody passes them and crosses the finish line before them. Uh, you know, the, the soccer goalie who, who catches the ball and then there's just enough backspin on it that it just rolls right into the goal. So you, until you're in heaven, you need to press on. You need to keep going. Don't celebrate too early. So you don't arrive. You also don't plateau. And you certainly don't want to fall away. Isn't that right? We don't want to backslide, fall away, depart from the faith. There's all this language that the Bible speaks of that we know we do not want to do. But look, there's always this danger. This danger of this happening in a person's life. And that's why we need to be warned. And so let's have our hearts and our minds eager this morning to hear this second part of this warning from Scripture as we continue to examine ourselves. So the main verses that we're going to want to consider this morning are Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Um, but before we get there, we want to backtrack a little bit and bring us up to speed with the things we've already heard. But I also want to let you know, as Rob said this morning, this is one of the hardest passages of Scripture in all of the Bible to interpret. So does anyone want to come and take my place this morning? <laughs> um, see, when you look at the interpretations of this section from people who are skilled in the word of righteousness, as our last section said, people who are excellent expositors of the Scripture, there are People who love Jesus, love the Bible, are spirit-filled believers in Christ, brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the Word of God. Among all these varied people, there are some very uh, different views regarding what this warning is actually telling us. But no matter how you slice it or how you dice it, here's what I'm going to say about this section of Scripture. It's terrifying. <laughs> the verses that we're going to read today are very unsettling. And they're meant to be. They're meant to put this soberness in us to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I do not want that to happen to me or to anyone that I know. And so as this section will come, it does come again into a very encouraging part a very comforting part, and we're going to get to that part today, but first we need to hear the warning and we need to heed the warning. And so today, we want to look soberly at this text. We want to examine it as accurately and as truthfully as we possibly can, but just please know that among Bible teachers that I personally love and respect, they hold to a different view and would teach this totally different than I am going to teach it today. I happen to believe that my view is right. And if anybody were to think of arguing with my position, you're out of here. No, it's right. It's like, you're welcome to see this text differently than I see it. But this way in which I've come to this text to understand it, I think the way that I, I've come to it is the way that it's made most sense to me. I hope it would help you today to understand. But you're free because you're a mature believer in Jesus Christ, right? You're free to go and study it to your, for yourself and come to a different perspective. And I'm happy to discuss this 
uh, text with you further, uh, not wanting to get into needless arguments about it. We want to be united on the main things that we do know. But I hope that two things come out of today. One is that you would realize for anyone there is a need to be warned. This warning is not for the person next to you. It's for you. So there's a need to be warned. This, this warning's for me. And then two, if, if you need to be comforted today, if you need to be assured today, I, I want you to be comforted. I want you to be assured. Because this scripture, just like it said early in the book of Hebrews, it, it's, it has a two-edged manner. It can both afflict the comfortable and it can comfort the afflicted. And so what does it need to do in you today? That's the question. Are you guys ready to dive into it? Okay, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we come into your word today, you would give us understanding, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would all move on more and more toward maturity in you, Jesus. So give us the understanding that we need by your Holy Spirit and give us the faith that we need to be able to draw near to you this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to back it up to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. This is where we started the uh, warning section last Sunday, and we're just going to run through this real quickly so that we're all up to speed. And verse 11 says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So right there, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek and how Jesus Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and this is something that's hard to explain. He will explain it in chapter 7, but before he gets there, he just wants to say, hey, you need to realize that this is hard things, but it's it's hard because of our hardness of hearts. We need to understand that we need to be sharp in our hearing. We need to have soft hearts to receive the word of God. But he's saying to the Hebrews, you have become dull of hearing. Your hearts have grown cold to these truths. In verse 12, he says, for by this time, you ought to be teachers. Because of how long you've been Christians for, and in that first century, at the time when this was written, this was maybe 35 years at the most from the time when Jesus walked the earth. So they've been Christians for at most 35 years, but, but it, it seemed that they were Christians, you know, one-year-old Christians 25 times or 35 times rather than growing over time to where they would need to be teachers. Instead, they needed, as it says, someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says you need milk, like a a little baby that nurses his mother. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. They can't digest these truths. They're too... They're too heavy for them. They they can only live off of milk since they're a child. But solid food is for the mature. Tri-tip is for adults, right? And and so solid food is for mature. And then it says, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Pastor Rob and I were talking this week about how there's such a wonderful truth in that verse, verse 14, for the body of Christ, 
that we, we sort of quickly went over last week. And I just want to say this. There is a serious need in the body of Christ for discernment. We need discernment. We need to be able to distinguish good from evil. Because we're living in a world that is not distinguishing good from evil. Everything's gray. Everything's just muddied. And the body of Christ needs more than ever before, I believe, because the Spirit says that in the last days, it's going to grow in increasing evil, increasing deception in the last days. And we're in the last days. We're in the last days because Jesus is coming quickly and there's an enemy, an adversary of our souls, and there's the world and there's the flesh that is wanting to deceive you and to draw you away from Jesus Christ. And the body of Christ needs more than ever their powers of discernment trained. And how do you train your powers of discernment? You use them. Constant use Constant practice. It's like, you know, when you go to the gym, it's like, use them or lose them, right? You got to use your muscles. You got to use your digestive system. And if you're not using it, you're going to lose it. And so then we come into chapter six, and there's this section that seems to say, well, can I lose my salvation? We're, we're, we're going to get into this, but let me just say this, is that this is a section that some have believed teaches you can lose your salvation. Now, is this something like, you know, I, I lost my keys. Oh my goodness, where did my keys go? I can't find them. Like you just lose your salvation. No, salvation is not something that you can just lose. I hope you have the discernment to understand that. But salvation is definitely something where we need to be assured of it. And there's an assurance that comes from Scripture there's an assurance that comes from the Spirit of God, and there's an assurance that comes that when you have constant practice, and you're constantly practicing this life of faith, you're moving towards Jesus, you're going to know that you know that you're saved. And so let's get into chapter 6, where it says, therefore, in light of what we've just spoken about, where you need to grow into spiritual maturity, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity. Now, when it says there to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, it's not saying, like, abandon it. It's saying that this is a foundation, because it says not laying again a foundation. There, there's a foundation of the elementary doctrines of Christ. There's the ABCs. All of these kids that sat on our steps are going to school this week. My son is going into first grade. He's going to build on the things that he learned in kindergarten. When you go into first grade, you don't just leave behind the ABCs, but you build on the ABCs so that eventually you can read. And hopefully you come from a point where it's, you're not reading, I am Sam. Sam is friends with Cat. Cat has a friend called Matt, right? Hopefully that's not your reading level still as you've grown, maybe going into college right now. There's a continuing of moving from the elementary doctrines of Christ, moving on to maturity. We don't want to lay again a foundation. A foundation is set. 
And there's no foundation that can be set other than that which is in Jesus Christ. The foundation, fundamentally, is that Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh and lived a perfect and sinless life, died on a cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again, and then ascended to heaven where he is, and he's coming again. Right? That's the foundation. And no other foundation other than that which is set in Jesus Christ can be laid. And so if that is the foundation, we need to move on from it, or at least keep building up upon it. Now, in verse 2, this is where we come into um, my slides. I have slides today, and I have a laser pointer. Look at this. This is cool. And if you're a visual learner, we're going to the classroom today. Where we got the PowerPoint slide so that you can visibly learn what this text is seeking to tell us. There's an f- elementary doctrine, there's a foundational uh, groundwork that has been laid, and the writer of Hebrews begins to list them. And he lists them in, in three different pairs, three groupings of elementary foundational doctrines of our faith. The first one is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Do you see that at the end of verse 1? Look in your Bibles. Today is the day where I want to see heads going up and down in the Bible, okay? The first one is a, a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So what that's saying is, you, you turn, repentance is the Greek word metanoia, which is a changing of your mind that results in a change of behavior. And so you're changing your direction from dead works, and then you're going toward faith in God. That should be simple ABC Christianity. Then it says, and instruction about washings, the laying on of hands. So that's the next grouping. Now, this word washings is the word baptismos, and maybe your translation says baptisms. And notice that it is plural. It's not singular. I I don't think that this is talking only about baptism in Christ, but this is talking about, um, about Jewish ritual washings. And then there is the laying on of hands. This is something that in the Old Testament was spoken about with uh, sacrificial work of the priests laying their hands on the sacrifice and there being this impartation that would happen. This is speaking about in the New Testament, how we lay hands for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And then the third grouping is the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgments. Okay. Verse 3, we're going to move on from these, and this we will do if God permits. Now, here's the big question that I want to ask everyone here today. Is there anything distinctly Christian about this? Would you say that all of these doctrines are found within Christianity? You can respond. These are all doctrines that are found within Christianity. Certainly. I could go throughout my New Testament And I can find many scriptures that talk about repentance from dead works. I can find many scriptures that talk about faith toward God. 
I can go through my New Testament. I can find all the instructions about washings, particularly about baptism into Jesus Christ. I can find the scriptures of the laying on of hands, for instance, in James, talking about if anyone is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church with the laying on of the hands. I could find these scriptures. Then we could talk about the resurrection from the dead, clearly how Jesus himself was raised from the dead, and that those who believe in him will also experience a resurrection from the dead. We can go and find all of the eternal judgments, whether that's the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ that's spoken about in 1 Corinthians 3, or we could go to Revelation and we could look at the great white throne judgment. We could look at the sheep goat judgment. There's many different judgments in the New Testament that we can go and find. So would you say that these are all distinctly Christian doctrines? Okay. But are these also Jewish doctrines? See, these are all distinctly Jewish doctrines as well, because if I were to go to my Old Testament, I could find many scriptures of repentance from dead works. I could go to David repenting after his sin with Bathsheba. Faith toward God. I could find all those places like Abraham who offered up Isaac there on Mount Moriah, right? And how that was his faith toward God. We're even going to get to Hebrews 11 and see all those Old Testament saints who had repentance from dead works and faith toward God. We could go find instructions about washings. Have you read Leviticus lately? We could find the laying on of hands, particularly with regards to the animal sacrifice or how prophets or priests or kings had the laying on of hands at the experience of, of their callings or the resurrection from the dead. Certainly the Old Testament speaks of the resurrection of the dead. The, the Psalms speak wonderfully about it. We could find all this by eternal judgments. You get the point. We could find all of these things in our Old Testament. So are these distinctly Jewish doctrines? They are. And so next slide. Here's the thing about all of these foundational doctrines of Christianity. They're shared with Judaism. And so... Judaism cannot save anyone because it is based upon the law, the covenant of the law, and the law cannot save. The law was only given to reveal sin. It was like a tutor that is meant to bring you to Christ, but it can't take you all the way into salvation. Joshua, you know, or Moses cannot save you. Jesus has to save you, right? So there's a, a limit to what the law can bring And so when we come into our New Testament, we understand that we are saved how? By grace. Through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's this new experience that comes where we are saved by grace through faith by believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was Jewish, if anyone didn't realize that. He's the Jewish Messiah, He is the Christ to the Greeks. He is the Savior of all of humanity. Anyone who looks at him will be saved. And so Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the Gentiles. But what we need to remember about the book of Hebrews is that this was a book that was written to Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians were in a period of time where Christianity was new. 
And it was going against the cultures and the traditions and the times of when they were living. And so at this time, persecution began to arise towards Christians. And because persecution was arising towards Christians, there was some discouragement that was coming upon the believers. There was some unsettling that was happening in the church. The, the church was not fitting in with the cultures and the traditions of the times. And so there was this sort of place where the Jewish Christians thought, you know, I'm going to camp out here because why? Because it's safe. Because if I'm here on these doctrines, you know, there's nothing distinctly Christian about it, so I'm not going to be persecuted as a Christian. And, and there's certainly things that are Jewish about it, and so I, I can kind of, I can be kind of like a Jewish Christian, and, and people will wonder, well, is he Jewish or is he Christian? And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Right? We could set this whole diagram up for Gentiles becoming Christians. That would be a, a similar sort of diagram, but that's not who the book of Hebrews was written to. It was written to Jewish Christians, so we want to read it in its context. Is everyone tracking with me? Okay. Now, we're going to read verse 4 to 6. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Whoa. Who is that talking about? Well, this is where there is varied interpretations as to who this is talking about. But Let's look at these first words in verse 4. It says, for it is impossible. What do you think that word impossible means? Impossible. It's going to be used later on in the chapter to say, it is impossible for God to lie. Is it possible for God to lie? No, it is impossible. Impossible doesn't mean really hard, really difficult, really challenging. It means it can be done. So it is impossible. Well, what's impossible? It's impossible in the case of those who have once, and then it goes into a whole nother list of an experience of people who in, in this case have experienced something of God. What have they experienced of God? They've been enlightened. That word enlightened comes from the Greek word Phototizo, and it means that a light has illuminated upon you and you've come to a knowledge and an understanding because of truth, enlightened. And then it says that you've tasted the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? Well, I think the heavenly gift certainly would be the gift of salvation, the, 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 the heavenly promise that Jesus gave to those who believe him. These people have tasted that. Now, Earlier in the book of Hebrews, it says 
Jesus tasted death for all of us. Did Jesus die? So, taste, what does taste mean? There's controversy as to whether taste means, you know, you taste something and you spit it out, or you taste something and you eat it and it comes inside of you. So, we've got enlightenment, we've got tasting of the heavenly gift, and then it says, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Another word is having become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit works in our lives and in this world. The Holy Spirit can be with you, He can be in you, and He can be upon you. And so, in some way, these people have experienced, have become a partaker of the Holy Spirit. To what degree? I don't know. We'll see. Verse 5 says, and they've tasted again using that word, the goodness of the word of God. They've said the word of God is sweet. The word of God is nourishment. The word of God has come in. I've tasted it. And not only the word of God, but also the powers of the age to come. There's a sense of the miracles of God and and the future promises of God that have also been experienced by these people. Now, what do you think... The, this person, in the case of these people, they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Would you consider that person a Christian? Oh, some of you just put yourself into a category of interpretation that they're Christians. Would anyone say these are not Christians? Okay. See where you lie doctrinally, right? I'm, I'm, I don't want to mess around with you guys. This is hard because amongst different interpreters, there will be those who say, oh, these are for sure Christians. Others say these are not Christians at all. And you can say, how can they not be Christians? That seems like a very... I, I would maybe put somebody into spiritual leadership who had those qualifications. So who are these people? Well, let's find out. Let's see the next slides we've got. Uh, back to the diagram, sorry. Let's bring up the apparent and apostate slide. All right. Go back to the last slide first. Sorry, guys. All right, so we know that this is, these are doctrines that are shared amongst Jewish and Christians. So if you're over here, you're for sure a Christian. If you're over here, you're for sure Jewish. <laughs> But here, there's sort of this Jewish Christian, and there can be this sense in which you're a Jew who has become a Christian, or you're a Jew who has experienced and heard and tasted and partaken in some elements of Christianity, but you are not yet a Christian. So let's go to the next slide. This zone here is the zone that the writer of Hebrews is warning against. This is the danger zone, right? Ever, somebody cue up the song, danger zone, Kenny Loggins. This is the danger zone. You don't want to be here because this is the place where you are either potentially a Christian, sure, but there's also this danger that you might be either at some point become an apostate or you are an apparent Christian. 
Let me seek to explain these two things to you. Apostates or apostasy is described in the Bible of those who, right here it says in verse 6, and then have fallen away. Somebody who has experienced in some way the doctrines of Christianity, potentially some would even believe to have placed faith in Jesus, to then have fallen away. Now, this isn't saying that they fell, that they stumbled, that they sinned one time. They had a really bad weekend. They, they went on a binge for a week or for a few months. They were really in a dry spell. Or even for a decade, they backslid and they were a prodigal, but then they eventually came back to Christ. But again, if you're not moving towards Jesus, you're probably drifting away from Jesus. And so this is a dangerous place to be because you might drift until you drift into shipwreck. You may, you may stumble and stumble until you fall away into unbelief. And so there's a warning all throughout Scripture of those who fall away from Christ. Demas is an example of someone who was an associate of Paul. He went on all the missionary journeys. He was part of the, the community of the church. And, and then it says, for love of this present world, he departed from the faith. There are people who, as it says in the pastoral epistles, shipwreck their faith. You don't want to be that. But then there's also an interpretation of this text where you can be an apparent believer, where you, you have some really amazing experiences. You're in the community of faith. You, you've, you know, you've got the washing, the laying on of hands and all these things. You've, you've um, been enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. But, but you were never really saved. And you just had the appearance as though you were saved. There's a lot of problems with that because that can scare people and deceive people into thinking, well, am I or am I not? Am I really saved or am I just faking? Am I just pretending? But here's the thing. There has always been fakers in the church. You know, there has always been wolves that come in dressed in sheep's clothing. There's always been tares among the wheats. And so there's the possibility of these people being apparent believers. Now, to be an apparent believer, this is comfortable for the people who say, well, if you've been saved, you are always saved. You can't lose your salvation. You, you know, you're secure. And, and so if, if you are really saved, your faith is going to finish. But you know, as they'll go to First John and say, they went out from us because they were never of us. They were with us. I worshiped alongside them. I prayed alongside them. I was in Bible study. I went to church with them. But then, but then they went out from us because they were never of us. And then there's the apostate idea where it's like they were with us, they were worshiping us, they, we were in the church together, we were in community, in faith, in prayer, and all these things, and now they've, they've walked away, and, and they have abandoned Christ. They do not believe in Jesus anymore. They do not say that they have faith anymore, and so they're an apostate. So the question is, were they saved? Were they not saved? 
I'll let you decide that. But what I'm going to decide today is I never want to be here. And I don't want any of you to ever be here. How do we make sure we are not here? We move on toward maturity in Jesus Christ. Next slide. Great. You know about repentance from dead works. You know what it is to have faith toward God. You know what it is to have instructions about washing and laying on a hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgments. Like you get these things, you believe them. You have been enlightened. You have tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the word of God. You know the powers of the age to come. But there seems to be saying here in the book of Hebrews, that's, that is enough to be saved, but there's more. <laughs> how's there more? There's always more. I don't know how, but there's this sense in which it's like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And all I can describe is when I've been a Christian since I was 17 years old, I have always realized there is always more of God for me to move towards too. There, I'm always wanting to draw near to God and have him draw near to me. I'm always wanting to pursue Jesus and to grow in my faith. Have I had times when I've become stagnant? Yes. Have there been times that I have backslid? Absolutely. Have I been a real dummy and blown it real big? Yes, of course. But I thank Jesus Christ that he's my savior and that his blood washes me. But here's the thing that terrifies me and I hate. I hate it. Is that I know people who have had all those same experiences with me but right now, where they currently are at is they deny Jesus, and they do not have faith in him any longer. They've walked away from Jesus. They were at one time in the church with me. People I used to do ministry with are now rejectors of Jesus Christ and his gospel. I don't believe that stuff anymore. I did at one point. I don't anymore. Do you know anyone like that? It's terrible. I hate it. And I don't want anyone to become that. And so there is only one direction for us to go. It's towards Jesus Christ. Because here's where the temptation was for the Jews. Is I can have all of these things, but without Christ. But if you don't have Christ, you don't have salvation. Salvation is not following laws and rituals. These people left Christ and went back to sacrifice animals. They left Christ as their high priest and went back to the Jewish high priest to offer sacrifices once a year on the Day of Atonement. These are people that left Christ and reverted back to something that was completely obsolete and no longer was a means by which they could be saved. And so for these people who have fallen again, it says then, it is impossible in verse 6 to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. 
I don't know what to do with that scripture. Because when I read my Bible, there's always a possibility for me to repent. There's always a possibility for me to come back to Jesus. So is this saying it's impossible for these who have fallen away to then be restored to repentance and therefore come to salvation? I don't know. I don't like it. I just know that while I have breath in my lungs, I'm not going to let that be me, and I'm going to seek to not let all the people that are around me, I don't want that to happen to you. So verse 7 says, For land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receiving a blessing from God, for it bears thorns and thistles, for if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Look, we could go through a lot of different scriptures to show that this is where you don't want to be, but that you always want to move toward maturity. If you move this way, that's either apostasy or you were never actually saved. First John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were never of us. We don't want that to be the case for anyone, any one of us. Second Peter chapter 1 talks about how we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says there that you want to add to your faith. Let, we got time? Let's go to Second Peter chapter 1. Turn there. So Peter starts out by us wanting to make our calling and election in Jesus Christ sure, to be confident about it. Because in verse 3, his divine power has granted us all things to pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence, by which we've been granted his very great and precious promises so that through them we may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Does that sound like a Christian? Yes. So if that's you, it says then this in verse 5, for this reason, because you've been saved and have become a partaker of the divine nature, make every effort to supplement your faith. Add to your faith. Keep building on your faith. Grow in your faith. How do you do that? Well, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then with virtue, knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. It's saying these outworkings of your faith in Jesus as they come forth in your obedience to Christ, you should always be growing and maturing and adding these to your faith. For if these qualities are yours and look, increasing, continually growing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this. For whoever lacks these qualities... You're not growing in grace, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you lack these qualities of Christ-like behaviors, then you're so nearsighted 
that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. When we went through 1 John, I said, we're not looking for the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. No one's going to be perfect this side of eternity, but there should be a proper direction of your faith in Jesus. Look, this zone here is what the writer of Hebrews says is, is coming up short of the rest of God. This zone here is what the Paul, Apostle Paul said when he was talking about being infant Christians, baby Christians who are still arguing about divisions and strifes and envies. He's saying, you know, there's a foundation. Build on it. Because your works are going to be judged. And there's those who, if they're not building on the foundation, they'll be saved, but they'll be saved through fire. It's like fire insurance Christianity. You don't want that. Matthew chapter 13, you've got the parable of the soils. Go read the parable of the soils. I would say this is soil number one. This is the rocky soil that just never takes root. This is soil number two and three, where the, it gets snatched away after a short period of time, or as it grows, it gets choked out by other desires and riches and pleasures in this world. This over here is the good soil, the one that bears fruits. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. The seed of God's word falling upon the good soil of your heart is this. Go read Acts chapter 8 and see this guy named Simon, who was a magician, who followed Philip. And he gets baptized, actually, by Philip. But then there comes a point where the apostles come to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. And Simon says, can I buy that? And he wants to buy the Holy Spirit so that he could use it like a magic trick. And Peter says to him, let your silver and gold perish with you. Your heart is not right with God. You are like gall, and this is sin, and you're not right with God. And he like kind of rebukes him and says this curse. And then in verse 24 of chapter 8, Simon answers, pray for me that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And that is my prayer. <laughs> Just pray for me that that, that that apostasy would not happen to me. That I wouldn't have just been a fake Christian this whole time. Pray for me that that wouldn't happen. So I know that I always want to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, always moving on toward maturity. And so I end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So, I had my nice, cool laser pointer today, you know. I brought another device here this morning. 
This is a Faithometer 2000. <laughs> so as the worship team comes up, everyone, worship team, come on up. If you want to come forward and line up here at the altar, I can scan your forehead and I can see whether you have faith. So this is a pretty cool gadget. It's only available to pastors. Um, and so if you want to know that you are really a believer in Jesus Christ, come and I'll scan your forehead, right? No. But here's what you should know. You should know if you know Jesus. You should know if you're known by Jesus. And you have to examine yourself and to see if you're really in the faith. Are you backslidden? Repent and turn back. There's the possibility that your prodigal and the father's just waiting to run out to meet you and to lavish you with his grace. Have you drifted from God? Realize it. Fix your eyes on Jesus and get back into alignment with him. Anchor your soul in the hope of the gospel. Have you fallen away to this place where you can now no longer be renewed to repentance because you have crucified the Son of God and held him up to an open contempt. You have shamed the Son of God so much by your sin that you can never be restored to repentance again. Is that you? Look, if you're worried about that, it's probably not you. You haven't done that. You see, the devil can preach a way better sermon on this text than I just did. And here's the difference today with that chart. If you're moving away from Jesus, you're listening to condemnation. If you're moving toward Jesus, you're listening to conviction. There's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction leads you towards Jesus and his grace. Condemnation leads you away from Jesus, toward yourself, toward the law, toward nothing. <laughs> There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But I, I would hope and pray that this morning you would examine yourself to see whether you are in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand up together and worship with a final song.